Good morning, church. Good morning. It's kind of a dreary, rainy Sunday. Super, super fun, energetic, energy-wise. No, just me? Uh, Good morning. Thank you for joining us today, Uh, whether you're here with us in person or if you are watching online. uh, If I haven't met you, my name's Andrea. I am one of the pastors here at Christ City. And um, I just, real quick, I want to make another plug for small groups. Small groups this week. Yes. Yes. They start this week. All of our small groups are open to new folks this semester. So if you are looking to plug in, if you're looking to just try it, you can just try it. That's okay. You can try a couple. That's also okay. Um, Take a look at our website. Um, You can flag down one of the pastors or one of the small group leaders that you saw standing after the service to get more information. Uh, We'd love, we would love to host you in a small group. So we, today, we are back in the gospel of Mark. Who is excited? I, I, um, I received that. We receive it. So we started the Gospel of Mark back at the beginning of the year, and we have a plan, okay? The plan is to get through the entire book of Mark in three parts. So part one, we started in January, and, and we, um, we went through the spring. You can watch or listen to all of the sermons of part one on our website or on our YouTube channel if you need a catch-up or a refresher. Um, today, we are starting part two. Part two. See, low energy. Part two. Today. Uh, yes. It's giving rain. It's giving so much rain. Today, we're starting part two. Uh, and we will be in, part, in the Gospel of Mark through the fall all the way up to Advent. So we're going to be in Mark for a few weeks together. I want to remind you that we have put together a reading guide again for this section of Mark. Oh, bless it, God. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) The reading guide lays out each portion of Scripture that we're going to be preaching on every week. There are five, like, just really simple questions to consider Um, You can read a week ahead if you want. That has been my preferred way to do it. I like to kind of sit with the scripture, even just for a couple minutes a day, leading up to the week that we preach on that scripture. You can also do it afterwards. It's totally up to you. You can find printed copies of the reading guide outside on the table, or you can find it online here. (laughs) Yeah, You can find it online there um, and use your phone or print your own. So the reading guide. Okay, so we're in part two. In the first part, I just want to give you just like a refresh. This is kind of where we've come from. It's been a few months. We're coming back. So in the first part of Mark, we looked at chapters 1 through 6, almost all the way through 6. And we centered in on this proclamation of Jesus in chapter 1 where he says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That was our anchor verse. So we read about... Jesus healing people, and we read how he went toe-to-toe with the religious leaders of the day and how the people, including the disciples, were just trying to figure out who Jesus was and what the heck it meant. So in our first series, we came back again and again to this, the actions of repent and believe. 
how recognizing the good news that the kingdom of God is near doesn't allow us to remain neutral. We have to respond. And to repent and believe is to act. Back in January, when Pastor Justin kicked off the first part of this series, he, he said that the word translated as repent in Greek simply means to rethink your thinking, to turn around, to change the motivation and direction of your life. So in the last sermon of the series, we talked about curiosity. We talked about curiosity leading to belief. And we talked about belief as almost like stepping into a body of water, like a river. When we approach a river, we can stand near it on the shore or we can get in it and we can be carried along by its movement. And belief as an action is getting into the river and letting it carry us. It's not just like an intellectual pursuit as we assume a lot of the time. It's a whole body, whole life action to step into the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. So those were some of the things that we wrestled with in the first part of our study of the Gospel of Mark. So in this next section, this is part two, we're going to keep moving with the narrative. If part one was calling us to repent and believe, that those were our actions, repent and believe. If that was part one, then part two, I think, is figuring out what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus. If part one was about getting off the riverbank and into the water, then part two is about learning how to swim, how to move with the water in it. So over the next 10 weeks, we're going to be covering the rest of chapter 6 of Mark, and then we're going to go all the way through chapter 10, and we're going to follow the narrative as we together try to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. I realize this might seem like a, like a kind of basic elementary theme in the Christian faith following Jesus. I agree. It is. It is one of the foundations of the life of faith. There was this trend like years ago that I think still holds, I still see it, of Christians labeling themselves not as Christians, but as Jesus followers. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Christ followers. Not Christians, Christ followers. Um, But that's a thing, following Jesus. It's the one of the basic tenets. We talk about, I mean, we've heard it this morning. We talk about faith and leadership in terms of of following. Follow me as I follow Christ, right? We use the word disciple. We use the word discipleship to capture this growing and moving along in faith. And to be a disciple is to follow Jesus. So our anchor verse for this portion, for this part of the Gospel of Mark is Mark 8:34 when Jesus says If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We've heard Jesus' invitation to repent, to believe, and now we hear it to follow, to follow him. We're asking what it means to be a disciple, to follow Jesus as we journey through this next section of Mark. As a reminder, when we study any kind of scripture, okay, there are three perspectives to consider. And this certainly holds true as we consider what following Jesus means in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, so there's three. There's the perspective of those who are present with Jesus in the narrative. So like for us, it's the people he comes into contact with, 
um, the 12 disciples, uh, the crowds of people, the religious leaders of the day. Okay, that's one. Then there's the perspective of the original hearers of Mark's gospel account, who was, they were probably likely a community of believers, like the early, early church. Mark was one of the first books written in the New Testament. So this is early, early church. That's who Mark is writing to. So there's that perspective to consider. And then the third perspective to consider is ours. It's us, our perspective today. And each of these audiences hears the words of scripture of this gospel in their own context. And there are diverse implications for each audience, right? And this is one of the things that I appreciate so much about scripture. We recognize how bound we are to other people and how bound we are to being embodied people in a place and a time and how God honors that and how scripture speaks even through different places, different times in the ways that human beings embody their context. So we're considering the same thing as those who first heard Jesus, like in person. We're considering the same thing as those who came long, long before us in the church. And we're considering even the same thing as even those who are sitting around us now in this room and on the internet now. <laughs> what does it mean to follow Jesus? We're considering this together. For the 12 disciples and the crowds that heard Jesus, to follow him, this, this invitation to follow me, follow him, to be a disciple, it might have been associated with a couple of different ideas. So there was this platonic idea of discipleship of Plato, not like friends, like platonic of Plato, just being clear. There was a platonic idea of discipleship, of being a follower, right? So it was to be a student, but this idea was to not be beholden to the teacher, but to the philosophies, to the teachings, right? And then in this same kind of way, Jewish religious leaders pointed their followers, their students, their disciples towards the Torah and away from themselves as well. Jesus's call then to follow him is different because Jesus points to himself. We're being called to commitment to the person of Jesus when we follow him. And this makes discipleship about so much more than just like a one-time salvation experience. Um, it makes it so much more than just praying a particular prayer. It makes it so much more than a faith that can be very easily compartmentalized. Following Jesus is centered on Jesus himself. What Jesus does, where Jesus goes, what Jesus cares about, how Jesus relates to God who Jesus is. We are called to follow Jesus. Now the disciples would have been trying to figure out what this meant in real time while physically following Jesus, like walking around with him. They're, they got to watch him heal. They were there when he would be confronted over and over again by the powers that be. They were the ones who were being physically sent out by him. They're trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus? There was no blueprint at all. For Mark's original audience, the early, early church, following Jesus would have included considering what they knew about his whole life trajectory, which they would have known already at that point, especially considering that they were likely facing persecution as a result of their faith. For us, perhaps part of understanding what it means to follow Jesus is getting away from like the contemporary meaning of following, which I feel like is primarily through social media what it means to follow somebody. 
outside of clicking a follow button, and sometimes not even then, right? Like, I'm like, how am I following this person that I never subscribed to follow? Outside of that, to follow somebody in our context is, is passive. It's a passive move. To follow someone requires very, very little of us. Mostly it just requires our passive consumption, right? To follow Jesus is not passive consumption. To follow Jesus is an active pursuit. Those are really, really different. We're unable to follow Jesus and remain where we are. We're unable to follow Jesus and remain unchanged or unmoved, holy. This is the work that we're hoping to engage over these next few weeks in this series as we journey together through the Gospel of Mark. We want to together learn what it means to follow Jesus, to name and accept what can't remain the same in us and around us in our pursuit of the person of Jesus. So that's where we're going. That's what we're going to keep coming back to in this next section of Mark. So that brings us to today's text. We're picking up where we left off in the spring, Mark chapter 6, the beheading of John the Baptist. Super great way to start and kick off the series. <clears throat> Let's talk about a beheading. Really fun. Who scheduled these? I feel like Justin did. It wasn't me. It was Mark. <laughs> Thank you. It was Mark. So yeah, that's our text today. You heard it read. Uh, the beheading of John the Baptist. It, it's a little bit of an intense narrative. Um, it seems kind of random. That's just kind of dropped in here. So let's, let's just get into the context just a little bit um, as, we, as we tackle it this morning. Okay? Cool? Yep. Context. Great. Okay. First, I just want to remind you that the gospel accounts were not written in a vacuum. Okay? They're not like neutral retellings of events that happen. Each of the gospel authors wrote to a specific audience in a specific time and context with specific agendas. Each author used literary techniques and other elements in order to express important themes based on their audience's context. So we've already talked about Mark's gospel likely being the earliest written. And Mark tells the story of Jesus's life and death in a particular way to a particular community of early believers who probably heard this gospel read aloud. As a side note, if you'd like to engage a little bit more, listen to the scriptures that we're going through audibly. Listen to them. Don't just read them. Let your ears engage as well. So this wouldn't have been the first time that this community, this early church, would have heard about Jesus. At this point, they were likely in at least a loosely formed community, they were part of the, very, of the early fledgling church. And they may have already been familiar with the narratives of Jesus' life. They might already know about, they are definitely already know about his death and about his resurrection. And they already know what will happen to Jesus. And they're learning what it means to follow Jesus after his death and after his resurrection. So what is the author communicating to this group of people through this particular narrative that we're looking at today of John the Baptist? being beheaded. Okay, so one of the very particular literary techniques the author of Mark uses is called intercalation. Okay, it's fancy. I don't know. Maybe I'm saying it wrong, but intercalation. 
or its more memorable moniker, the Markin sandwich. So, oh, everybody remembers the sandwich, the sandwich. <laughs> So we, we talked a little bit about Mark and Sandwiches in the first part of our Mark series. It comes up a few times as a quick refresher. A Mark and Sandwich occurs when the author of Mark intentionally sandwiches one passage or narrative in the middle of another one. So he'll start telling a story, and then in the middle of it, he'll just like start telling another story, and then when that one's over, he'll come back. It's a sandwich. This happens at least nine times through the Gospel of Mark. And it might seem random, but the inserted narrative, the meat, the one in the middle of the sandwich, is the one that almost always serves a distinctly theological purpose. So Mark uses it to emphasize these major themes of the Gospel and of faith. The middle story is the one that grounds the rest of the narrative with theological purpose. So like we saw this back in chapter 5, when the narrative of Jairus' daughter is interrupted by the story of the woman with chronic bleeding, right? So we see Jairus approach Jesus to heal his daughter, but then the story is interrupted by this woman who has been bleeding, who's determined to be healed by Jesus, and she's healed, and Jesus commends her faith, and then Mark returns back to the story of Jairus and his daughter, who's died in the meantime, and Jesus resurrects her from Death, And we see, when you see the whole sandwich together, we can see that it is pointing us to recognize both the power of faith and the abundance of the kingdom of God in a different way than we would have seen it in one of those narratives or if they were separate. So it's a very specific technique. So our text today on John the Baptist and his death is the middle part of a Markin sandwich. It's the meat. So when we left off in April in chapter 6, Jesus had sent the disciples out to proclaim repentance, to heal, to anoint. So like they're in the, the faith river, right? They've gotten in, they've been sent out, and they've been given authority, and they are out there. So they're sent out in verse 13, and that's when the narrative is interrupted in verse 14, which is our text today, the story of the death of John the Baptist. And after this story, the sandwich is completed in verse 30 when the disciples return to Jesus and tell him everything that happened while they were gone. So it's sandwiched in between these two, these two pieces of the disciples being sent out and returning. The middle of the sandwich is a tough story. Again, super great way to kick off this series. It's, it's sad and it's gruesome and it's unfair. John the Baptist has gotten on the bad side of Herodias, who was the wife of the ruling Tetrarch Herod. So a Tetrarch was like a Roman governor who held authority territorially. Herod had married her while she was still married to his brother. And John openly denounced their marriage because it was illegal under Jewish law. Because of this, John had been arrested, which we heard about in chapter 1, and is now in prison. So Herod, Herod did arrest John, but he respected John. That's what the text says. But his wife, Herodias, was looking for an opportunity to get rid of him. And in our text, she gets that opportunity the night that Herod throws himself a birthday party. So Herodias' daughter was sent into this birthday banquet to dance for Herod and his guests. And the text says that he was so pleased with her that he offered, any, he offered her anything that she wanted up to half of his kingdom or his territory. 
And at her mother's request, she asked Herod for the head of John the Baptist, who's in prison. So Herod doesn't want to kill John, but he honors his oath to the girl, and a soldier, bring John, a soldier brings John's head on a platter to the girl who gives it to her mother, who is Herodias. And the story ends with John's disciples placing his body in a tomb. So this is the meat of the Mark and Sandwich that we're looking at today. So what is Mark trying to communicate in this sandwich? And for us, we're looking at what it means to follow Jesus, right? We're looking at what it means to follow Jesus. What does this have to do with it? As I was considering this particular Mark and Sandwich, um, I got to thinking about a trip that my family had taken a few years ago. Not because it's related to a beheading of any kind. Don't worry. Um, at all. But I was thinking about a trip that we took um, a few years ago. If you know my husband, Drew, at all, uh, you know he's a big bike person. Um, and if you know me at all, you know I am not a big bike person. Uh, there may have been many a marital discussion somehow featuring bikes over the years, especially on vacation. Uh, any new city we go to, Drew wants to ride a bike, and I very much do not. So we've had to learn how to compromise over the years. So a few years ago, we were in Colorado with the kids, and Drew thought it would be a super fun idea to do a family bike ride in nature. <laughs> I was unsurprisingly opposed to the idea. Um, like, we were already tired. Our kids were a lot smaller. Like, they, they were non-bike riding age. So we had to, like, tow them. You know what I'm saying? But Drew is very persistent. And to his credit, he is the one who plans stuff on our trips. He finds the activities. He finds the cool places to go. And I just get to go along for the adventure, which most of the time has ended up producing some really great experiences and some very cherished memories. Most of the time. <laughs> this particular time... Drew sits me down, he tells me his plan for this great, like, fun, easy, beautiful bike ride through a nature trail along a mountain. We're in Colorado, nature. He's like, the trail is mostly flat. We'll, we'll, we'll just get, like, a double trailer for the kids, and I'll hook it to my bike so you don't even have to pull a kid. Like, our bodies are already used to the elevation. Like, look at my phone. Here's some great views that we're going to see on this cool bike ride. Like, it's so beautiful, right? He's like, what's up ahead is easy. It's going to be breezy. It's going to be great. You know, us and our family and nature. He sold me on it. So here we are at the beginning of this bike ride by a lovely waterfall. So cute. See, the kids are, are there. I should have known <clears throat> better, and I do now. <laughs> First of all, the bike rental place did not have double trailers. They had single trailers. So I ended up towing a kid, the least active kid who snacked the whole time. <laughs> The trail was not flat. It was, in fact, inclined steeply in long intervals. So much so that we both, both had to walk our bikes for, for parts of it, okay? Walk the bikes and the trailers through parts of it. So here I am again. <clears throat> We're not quite halfway through the bike ride at this point, I don't think. Not even halfway. I know this picture looks kind of silly, and I guess I was being kind of silly, but I need you to know that I was mad. Like, I was like big mad, okay? I was big mad. I was mad that I was not thoroughly prepared to do a bike ride like the one that we were on. I was mad that I went in thinking that it was gonna be a lot different than it actually turned out to be. 
and I was mad that neither one of us really knew that that was going to be the case until we got started. Drew didn't know, and then I didn't know. It was not what I expected it to be. It was a lot harder, and it wasn't even the trail's fault. It was our fault we didn't know, right? I know this is kind of a silly story, but this is what Mark is trying to avoid in using this particular Mark and Sandwich. He is making a point to the people that are listening about what to expect when they choose to follow Jesus. Let's not get the expectations wrong here. That's what Mark is saying. Make no mistake. Being a disciple is difficult and it has a cost. It's going to be harder than you think. This story is one of the few narratives in Mark that actually isn't directly about Jesus. Jesus doesn't appear anywhere in this story. But we're meant to, to see this connection with Jesus really clearly. So Mark uses details in the story to foreshadow what's going to happen to Jesus, almost point by point. So like John, Jesus is going to be arrested for speaking truth to power. The ruler in authority like John over Jesus will not want to condemn him to death, but will fold to the pressure of the people and then abdicate responsibility for his death. Like John, the system is going to work against Jesus. It will be unfair and his death will be unjust and he will end up in a tomb too. Mark has, has shown John to be the forerunner of Jesus' message and of Jesus' ministry all the way through. And now in this little sandwich, he's showing John to be the forerunner of Jesus' death too. In this sandwich, Mark is not allowing those who would choose to follow Jesus to walk into a life of faith blindly. It is meant to point towards the cost of following Jesus and the countercultural nature of the kingdom of God. I'll remind you here of our anchor verse over these next few weeks from chapter 8. If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Sandwiched within this narrative of sending the disciples is this reckoning if we follow Jesus, it's going to lead us to the cross. This is what we're exploring over the next 10 weeks together, what it means to follow Jesus even to the cross. The life of discipleship is costly. Mark is reminding us of that here. When we choose to follow Jesus in the way of the cross, there will be conflict with the way of the world. When we follow Jesus and we speak truth to power, whether that's speaking truth to powers that are outside of us, or whether that's speaking truth to the way that we use power for ourselves, when we confront any force that stands in opposition to the kingdom of God, there's going to be a cost. When we follow Jesus, we will not have control over the way that worldly power is used, and we won't actually have use for it anymore the way that we have. And for the disciples and for Mark's audience, a very real possibility of following Jesus was systemic societal persecution and even death. Choosing to follow Jesus involves an acceptance that there will be conflict and there will be a cost. For us, 
We could sit here and name the way that we see power at work in the world. There is opposition to the kingdom of God and the way that the kingdom of God wants to work in the world. We see it in ever-growing divides racially, economically. We see it in the valuing of particular lives over other lives. We see it in the nonchalance or just ignorance or just blind denial of inequity. Inequity so much so that it actually costs people their lives. When we follow Jesus in the way of the cross, we will come up against these things outside of us and inside of us. We will come against it. And there will be a cost. Now, for most of us in our context today, the threat of death because of our faith is not likely. Though I, I want to name that around the world and even, and even here in the U.S., it is not impossible. I, I don't want to discount that there are people who read this narrative from a very different perspective than all of us in this room are going to hear this narrative about the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. That doesn't mean, though, that there isn't something for us here. That doesn't mean that there's not a cost for us to count. While, while our bodily life is something that can be laid down, that should be laid down in the pursuit of Jesus, what does it mean to lay our whole lives down? What does following Jesus cost us? I would challenge us that it still costs us our lives. It will cost us our comfort, our control. I don't feel like I'm the only one that has a white knuckle grip on both of those things in myself. It will cost us comfort, control. We will, when we follow Jesus, we will be called to serve others. We will call to allow ourselves to be served. We will be called to not just look out for ourselves anymore. We'll be called, like we talked about in two weeks ago, to be shaped and transformed in a community of people. Loss of control, loss of comfort. For those of us, for those of us with some kind of societal privilege, following Jesus will cost us the benefits of being higher up on a societal ladder. It will cost us the ability to wield power for our own advantage. It can cost us relationships. It can cost us ease. I miss the ease. It will cost us our certainty. It will cost us our certainty about the future, about what is next. It will cost us our certainty even about what faith is. This story prepares us that following Jesus will be difficult because the way of the cross is at odds with the way of the world. Mark is saying the way of the cross is difficult. Expect it to be. Expect it to be difficult. And this story encourages us that even when there are circumstances we can't control, when we are facing death, whether that's literal or figurative, that we are closer to the way of Jesus. We are called to follow Jesus, and in doing so, to become like him. 
The way of the cross is the way of Jesus. What then is the good news about following Jesus to the cross? We've come back to this again and again. What is the good news? What is the news? Is it good? Why would this be compelling in any way to the disciples who were trying to figure out what it meant to go against, to, to be countercultural, to go against all these ways that they thought the kingdom would look, and now it looks totally different? Why would it be compelling to the early church who is literally facing death, persecution and death? Why is this compelling to us? Why would we find this compelling? Why are we compelled to even question together what it means to follow Jesus when we know that it leads to death? Friends, I think it's because when we, when we follow Jesus, we know that it leads to death. And so we follow him to death. But when we follow Jesus, we also follow him to resurrection and to life. To true life. To real life. Without that, this is not worth it. Without stealing too much thunder from the preachers to come in the next few weeks, there is a cost and there is a gain in following Jesus. So the story right after our text today, this sandwich, we're going to look at it next week, is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a story of abundance where there is enough to satisfy not just our hunger, but everybody's hunger that's there. In our anger verse in chapter 8, which we'll get to in a few weeks, Jesus lays out the requirements to deny ourselves and take up our cross if we want to follow him. In the verse immediately following that, though, in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 35, Jesus continues, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Friends, there's an invitation here to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus unto death, to the cross and through the cross, through death, into resurrection and into life. So as we seek together what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to pursue him, to live into the kingdom of God, my prayer for us is that we can honestly count the cost and that we can also recognize that in becoming more like Jesus and following him to the cross, that that's where we find abundant life that sustains. Would you pray with me?